0: Hello, and welcome to Employment Law Legends, Episode 6, The ADA Strikes Back, Sutton vs. United Airlines, Inc. My name is Paul Rinnan. I am an employment and labor law attorney with the law firm Ogletree Deacons in Houston, Texas. In law school, strange questions sometimes come up. One of the most memorable ones I ever heard happened back in early 2008. My classmates were discussing employment law, Star Wars, and the Americans with Disabilities Act, or the ADA. The question seems simple enough. Would Luke Skywalker be considered disabled under the ADA? You remember what happened to Luke Skywalker, right? At the end of episode 5, The Empire Strikes Back, Luke battles Darth Vader in Cloud City and ends up getting his hand chopped off. After nearly falling to his death, Luke is whisked away to the edge of the galaxy, and a medical droid performs emergency surgery by installing a prosthetic hand to replace the one he lost. To make sure that the procedure works, the droid pricks Luke's fingers, and he makes a fist and then relaxes it. He has a brand new, completely functional hand. It's a miracle. In early 2008, it would have been safe to say that poor Luke would not have had a covered disability under the ADA. In Sutton v. United Airlines, Inc., the U.S. Supreme Court had held that mitigating and corrective measures must be considered in determining whether an impairment constitutes a disability. If a medical device or medication could significantly alleviate an impairment, then a person might not be considered disabled. In Luke's case, since his hand was corrected through the use of a prosthetic hand, and he did not appear to suffer from any further limitations related to that injury, He could not claim to be physically disabled. This answer seemed counterintuitive to our common sense at the time. How can a person who lost a limb not be disabled if corrective implements are used to improve his condition? How disabled do you have to be in order to be considered disabled? The Sutton decision was far-reaching and had opened many questions. It has been called the most important opinion ever decided under the ADA. Its practical effect was to make it much more difficult for persons with serious conditions like epilepsy, diabetes, multiple sclerosis, and other conditions to prevail in court when medical intervention worked too well in their favor. From its announcement, the Sutton decision faced a flurry of condemnation from many directions. Disability rights advocates and legal scholars criticized the case for ignoring the legislative history and administrative guidance and compared it to a large, gaping wound, hobbling disability law. But by September 2008, just a few months after my law school question came up, the times, they were a-changin'. Disability law suddenly turned upside down. Following substantial negotiations between the business community, civil rights leaders and Congress, a bipartisan piece of legislation called the ADA Amendments Act of 2008 was passed. The new law called out the Sutton case by name and said it was overruled. Enough was enough. Mitigating measures should no longer be taken into account. For a Supreme Court priding itself on interpreting the will of Congress, it seemed like the justices had really flown off course and received a serious bench slap. But had the justices really misinterpreted the law passed by Congress? And what was the cause of all this trouble? Well, as it turns out, the whole dispute started over glasses. The case began in Denver, Colorado, the mile high city. The year was 1992. Two identical twin sisters, Karen Sutton and Kimberly Hinton, were trying to start down a new road in their careers. They wanted to interview to be pilots for United Airlines at its flight center in Denver. Both women were young 30-something pilots with experience flying regional airlines. They had flown a long way to be here and had much in common. Both women lived in Spokane, Washington. They both had bachelor degrees earned with honors. They had flown 3,000 hours of flight time, and they both had a big, big dream of flying for a major airline. Now, United was about as major as you could get. Based out of Chicago, the company was one of the big three airlines left after the deregulation era of the 1970s and 80s. The company could trace its roots to the early 20th century and the aviation pioneer William Boeing. It was always on the cutting edge of innovation. Bring us the essentials, like the first-flight kitchen and in-flight television. The company controlled over half of the passenger market in the 1990s and invited guests to, quote, fly the friendly skies. Now, what makes the skies friendly? Well, for starters, when you don't fall out of it. United wanted its planes to not only be safe, but to be super safe. Super, super safe. Even safer than the other airlines. That was the selling point. So, they created an eyesight standard for their pilots, requiring uncorrected vision to be 2100. For those that don't know, this level of eyesight means that you must be as close as 20 feet to see what a person with normal vision can see at 100 feet. Importantly, United's policy did not make exceptions for glasses or contacts. If your normal eyesight did not meet the standard, you could not fly. As identical twins, Karen Sutton and her sister Kimberly Hinton had an identical problem because of this policy they had poor eyesight their vision did not meet the standard in fact they had 2200 vision in the right eye and 2400 vision in the left eye they weren't even close hitten had already applied twice for a position with united and been rejected due to united's policy but in 1992 things suddenly started looking up for the sisters the ADA had just taken effect 2 years before and there was widespread expectation that the law would act as a new Emancipation Proclamation for persons with disabilities and would have a sweeping impact on the workplace. The Sutton sisters thought the ADA would protect them because they had bad vision. Their eyes were impaired. That had to be a disability, right? Perhaps the third time to apply to United really would be the charm. And at first, things looked promising. Both Sutton and Hinton received invitations for interviews to come to the Denver Flight Center and try out a simulator flight test. Hinton was scheduled first, and the flight instructor heaped praise on her, claiming, quote, Congratulations, you did a very good job. Unquote. During the personal interview, though, just as I'm sure Hinton was practicing how to sign her name on the soon to be received offer letter, the interview process suddenly crashed back down to earth. According to her later complaint, a United screener suddenly asked Hinton if she was aware that her uncorrected vision did not comply with United's minimum vision requirements. The screener quickly conferred and chattered and then conferred again with the United interviewer, and Hinton was called away from her group. She was then informed that the company had made a terrible, terrible mistake. Her interview was terminated immediately, and she was dismissed in front of her whole group. The group looked visibly startled about what had taken place. No one knew what was going on or why she was being asked to leave, and no doubt this whole scene was very embarrassing to Miss Hinton. After the whole debacle, Hinton returned home dejectedly, but her sister, Karen Sutton, decided to make another pass at the Denver Flight Center. Now, I have to really respect this decision, because I'm sure Miss Sutton held no illusions at this time about what awaited her at this interview. This was going to be a suicide mission. She had no chance, but like a kamikaze pilot, she flew headlong at the flight center to make one last final stand. This time, though, she wasn't even allowed to take a flight test. Her interviewer informed her right away that her uncorrected vision impairment made her unfit to be a pilot for United in the position that she had applied for, and her application process was brought to a screeching halt. This was just too much to Karen Sutton and Kimberly Hinton. United's vision policy seemed unreasonably strict. They wore glasses and could see just fine with them. They were able to function identically to someone with good vision, When they had their glasses on, better than good, 20-20 vision in both eyes. They hadn't crashed their planes yet, flying for other airlines, and they had thousands of hours of airtime to show for it. They were good pilots, but it seemed like they were being viewed by United as disabled invalids who couldn't be trusted with a control stick. The sisters sought legal counsel to determine if they had a case for disability discrimination, and in stepped Sean Mitchell a commercial litigator with the Denver firm Ireland, Stapleton, Pryor, and Pasco, This choice of counsel was an interesting one, to say the least. Sean Mitchell does not look like someone you would typically expect to be a civil rights advocate. A conservative Republican with roots in libertarian free market ideology, he would go on to serve in the Colorado House of Representatives and then the State Senate until 2013, where he would introduce legislation to ban things like affirmative action and the college indoctrination of liberal students. But, be that as it may, Sean Mitchell thought the Sutton sisters had a case and wanted to eliminate the disability barriers at United for people with similar vision impairments. Though, there was one slight problem. The ADA was young and case law was limited. To say disability discrimination law was unsettled at this time is a huge understatement. The whole concept of disability was rapidly changing in the public consciousness. As many scholars have pointed out, the idea that a disability is a characteristic deserving of civil rights protection is a relatively recent and revolutionary idea. For much of Western history, disability was associated with moral failing. Those with disabilities were thought to have committed some sin that caused their condition. In colonial America, persons with disabilities were viewed with reference to their relative dependency. Although the disabled were cared for by their families, they were often hidden out of shame. Early in the 20th century, new perspectives emerged. Disability was now conceptualized in medical terms. The disabled were examined to be diagnosed and potentially cured of their ailment. Then, following World War II and the crazy eugenicist policies which emerged from that era, a budding social movement developed in the 1960s and 70s, which criticized both paternalism and discrimination towards the disabled. Activists in this movement argued that disability was itself a social construct, A society's categorization of some people as disabled and others as non-disabled was arbitrary because it depended on the relative notions regarding the activities that humans should be able to perform and how they should be able to perform them. The new goal was societal participation and independent living for the disabled. These aspirations were part of the driving force to open up employment to persons with disabilities. One of the first victories occurred in 1973. Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act was passed, which prohibited any recipients of federal funds from discriminating against otherwise qualified individuals with a handicap, solely by virtue of the handicap. In 1984, a famous law review article, written by Robert Bergdorf Jr., an attorney for the United States Commission on Human Rights, argued that the law, rather than treating disability as an inherent characteristic, should instead focus on how society could reasonably adapt Physical and mental impairments of the disabled. These efforts bore fruit several years later in 1988 when Senator Tom Harkin and 13 other co sponsors introduced a bill prepared by Robert Bergdorf which would become the first step to the ADA. Although the bill died at the adjournment of the 100th Congress, a new bill was introduced in the 101st Congress. In 1989, Senators Tom Harkin and Edward Kennedy drafted a new version and they decided to borrow the definition of disability provided by the Rehabilitation Act to avoid political issues and to preserve legal consistency for the treatment of disabilities. The definition of disability in the new law was and remains complex and very technical to this day, but essentially there were three ways to be considered disabled under the statute. First, disability could mean a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities of an individual. Yes, that is a mouthful. Second, it could mean having a record of such an impairment. And third, a disability could mean being regarded as having such an impairment. The driving force behind each of these definitions, though, was an effort to eliminate barriers preventing the disabled from participating in society and the workforce. A broad coalition ultimately converged in favor of the legislation. Although the business community had some concerns, Senators Harkin and Kennedy ultimately negotiated with Republican Senators Bob Dole and Orrin Hatch over two heated months to hash out a grand bargain. Along the way, the bill wound through several committees where numerous issues were discussed. What is striking about all of these discussions is how often mitigating measures was addressed. This issue was directly on the mind of the legislators, and it came up numerous times. For example, the Senate Committee on Labor and Human Resources expressly stated, whether a person has a disability should be assessed without regard to the availability of mitigating measures, such as reasonable accommodations or auxiliary aids. Unquote. The report went further, stating, quote, for example, a person who is hard of hearing is substantially limited in the major life activity of hearing, even though the loss may be corrected through the use of a hearing aid. Likewise, persons with impairments such as epilepsy or diabetes, which substantially limit a major life activity, are covered under the first prong of the definition of disability, even if the effects of the impairment are controlled by medication. Unquote. The House Committee and Judiciary made similar observations. Ultimately, the bill was passed by wide margins by both houses of Congress and by both parties. President George H.W. Bush signed the ADA into law on a bright and sunny day on July 26, 1990. He described the new statute as a historic opportunity, where every man, woman, and child with a disability could now pass through the once-closed doors into a bright new era of equality, independence, and freedom. But this new era was not as bright and sunny as everyone hoped. The new bill created a tempest of litigation, with over 189,000 charges of discrimination being filed between 1992 and 2003. In the four years after the bill's passage, employment claims in federal court jumped 128%. When courts started to look at the bill, they found a lot of imprecise language. The Supreme Court was forced to step in numerous times to plug the gaps. Federal agencies like the Department of Justice and the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission also stepped in to try and define the meaning of certain technical terms. The EEOC was particularly aggressive and it went to great lengths to expand the bill in regulations and interpretive guidance. It introduced a complex analysis for what constituted an impairment that might limit major life activities like working. It also produced interpretive guidance stating mitigating measures should not be taken into account as lessening any substantial limitation arising out of a disability. Looking at all this legislative history and the interpretive guidance coming from numerous agencies and the wave of public support pushing the ADA along, Sean Mitchell could feel relatively confident that the ADA would cover the Sutton Sisters' vision impairments, whether they use glasses or not. But given the novelty of the bill and the diverse opinions circulating across the country, litigating in this era felt like the Wild West, where one had to shoot from the hip first and hope the courts would see it your way later. In December 1992, Mitchell started the case by filing a charge of discrimination with the EEOC on behalf of the Sutton Sisters. The EEOC then issued a determination that probable violations of the ADA had occurred. But when further conciliation efforts with United failed, Mitchell filed a complaint in the United States District Court for the District of Colorado on January 19, 1996. The complaint alleged simple facts. United had violated the ADA by rejecting the Sutton sisters because of their visual disabilities and because United regarded them as disabled. United required its pilots to have uncorrected distance vision of 2100, a standard that was based on military requirements for pilot training. United's policy improperly blocked the Sutton sisters, who otherwise could perform the work with corrective lenses, from an entire class of employment, that of a global airline pilot. The Sutton sisters requested legal and equitable relief, ordering United to not apply this unlawful criteria to them in future hiring decisions. For its defense, United retained Lisa Hogan. She was an attorney who focused in employment law for the law firm Brownstein Hyatt Farber Schreck, a large firm which currently has 250 attorneys. Now, Ms. Hogan was also an interesting choice of counsel. Although she mainly provided defense counseling, she also dabbled in plaintiff's work here and there. She also represented individual claims under the ADA and at one time received the largest verdict in a disability case in Colorado. She also had interest outside of the law, including performing circus acts with specialties in juggling, trapeze, and performing tricks in fabric from a 26-foot pole. What can I say? Some people play golf to let off steam. Some people play cards. Other people perform circus acts. Anyway, according to an interview with Ms. Hogan by Professor Stephen Beffert, a legal scholar from the University of Minnesota Law School whose excellent work on the Sutton case has been essential to this episode, Miss Hogan described herself as a litigator who liked to use a gut-level feel for the case. Something like a Jedi connection to the Force, I guess, depending on your point of view. With respect to the Sutton lawsuit, her gut told her that such a common ailment as correctable eyesight would undermine what the ADA was intended to accomplish. Over 100 million Americans had nearsightedness of some kind. That was close to 40% of the population of the entire country. Did Congress really intend to cover that many people? She didn't think so. Something just didn't feel right about it. She decided to try and get the case dismissed immediately with a special kind of motion called a motion to dismiss, which she filed on February the twenty nineteen ninety six. Now, this motion to dismiss was a long shot. Motions to dismiss can be very difficult to win. For purposes of the motion, the court assumes all of the facts stated in the complaint are true and construes them in the light most favorable. To the plaintiff, it then examines the assumed facts to see if the plaintiff has been able to state a claim for relief under the law. No discovery or depositions are taken, and the issues usually resolve around the allegations written in the complaint and not the evidence for the case. Due to the nature of a motion to dismiss, the case would be decided by legal briefing and the allegations in the complaint. Federal District Judge Daniel B. Spar was assigned to the case. Born in Denver, Colorado. He had left the state briefly to work in the Air Force and then returned to receive his law degree from the Denver College of Law in 1966. He worked in private practice before becoming a judge in the Second Judicial District Court of Colorado from 1977 to 1990. In 1990, only a few months before the ADA was passed, he was confirmed as a federal district judge for Colorado. The parties submitted their briefing to Judge Spar during the spring of 1996, and in July 1996, Sean Mitchell filed an amended complaint to revise some of the Sutton sisters' allegations in their complaint in an attempt to avoid dismissal. It was a good plan, but unfortunately for them, it didn't seem to work. Judge Spar issued his decision the next month. It was a total defeat. The Sutton sisters had lost on two major issues. First, and most importantly, Judge Spar ruled that the complaint failed to allege facts to establish that the Sutton sisters' nearsightedness impairment constituted an actual disability. Remember, under the statute's definition, plaintiffs needed to not only show that they had an impairment, but that they had an impairment that substantially limited a major life activity. The court noted that the petitioners, with their corrective lenses, were able to function identically to individuals without a similar impairment, and did not allege any medical restrictions. The court also approvingly cited growing case law, which found that the need for corrective eyewear was commonplace and did not substantially limit major life activities. Although the Sutton sisters had tried to allege that they were substantially limited in their ability to work, their complaint did not show they were unable to work a broad range of jobs when they wore glasses, as regulations from the EEOC seemed to require. The court then turned to the plaintiff's argument that mitigating measures like glasses should not be taken into account when assessing a disability. It sliced and diced the regulations and said that this provision applied narrowly, only to the question whether someone had an impairment. After it was determined whether someone had an impairment, mitigating measures could be taken into account to determine whether one was substantially limited in a major life activity. In practical terms, the court rejected the plaintiff's argument. The court seemed to be channeling the concerns of United's attorney Lisa Hogan when it further clarified, quote, to adopt a definition of disabled that would include persons whose vision is correctable by eyeglasses or contact lenses would result in an expansion of the disability protection. Beyond the logical scope of the ADA. Millions of Americans suffer visual impairments no less serious than those of the plaintiffs. Under such an expansive reading, the term disabled would become a meaningless phrase. Unquote. In a second major issue, the court also rejected the Sutton sisters' claim they were regarded as disabled by United in the major life activity of seeing or working. As I said earlier, the regarded as prong of the ADA was another way to be considered disabled under the statute if a plaintiff could show the employer committed an act based on stereotype, myth, or unsubstantiated fears about the person's condition. This actually seemed like a pretty strong argument for the plaintiffs, since United's pilot standard seemed to be beyond the standards of other commercial airlines. But the court disagreed. At most, it noted plaintiffs could establish that United regarded them as unable to satisfy the requirements of a particular passenger airline pilot position but not that they were disabled from working in a broad class of jobs in the end because both of the Sutton sisters had failed to state a claim under the ADA establishing that they had an actual disability or were regarded as disabled the court dismissed their claim and awarded costs to united now this opinion was a lightning quick and devastating blow to the sutton sisters It probably felt as quick and cursory as their interview with United several years back. But, in the words of the Roman poet Ennius, the victor is not victorious if the vanquished does not consider himself so. And the Sutton sisters did not consider themselves vanquished, and they were not ready to throw in the towel just yet. Sean Mitchell made plans to appeal to the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. With the novel mitigating measures issue, there was hope three different judges might see things differently why not roll the dice again? The panel for the appeal would ultimately be led by James E. Barrett, a driving force on the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals for decades. Judge Barrett had served honorably in World War II, landing at Omaha Beach during the Allied invasion of Normandy in June 1944. After the war, he attended the University of Wyoming, where he earned his law degree and then entered private practice in Lusk, Wyoming. He then served in numerous government positions before being appointed by President Richard Nixon to his position in 1971. His workload on the bench was legendary. He would go on to work on 9,000 cases and write more than 3,000 opinions while on the bench. This case would just be one of the many which he would produce during his tenure. Although the Sutton sisters had decided to roll the dice again, the appellate opinion did not go well for them. Judge Barrett's decision largely tracked the district court's determinations, finding that the Sutton sisters had shown they had an impairment but were not substantially limited in the major life activity of working. Plaintiffs had also failed to establish their theory that United regarded them as disabled from a large class of jobs. However, unlike the district court, the opinion took a closer look at the EEOC's interpretive guidance, which directed that the determination of whether an individual is substantially limited in a major life activity must be made without regard to mitigating measures. Taking a textualist line of reasoning, United had argued in their briefing that the text of the ADA clearly required that an impairment substantially limit a major life activity. If the Sutton sisters' theory was correct and mitigating measures had to be ignored, then the substantially limits language in the text of the ADA would make no sense and have to be read out of the statute. The statute didn't just say someone had to have an impairment. They needed to be substantially limited to. The Tenth Circuit chewed on this reasoning and seemed to swallow it, but it did not seem to give the legislative history much thought in its analysis. The Court also found that the interpretive guidance of the EEOC was internally inconsistent as well. In a passage from the interpretive guidance, the EEOC had noted that the determination of whether an individual has a disability is not necessarily based on the name or diagnosis of the impairment the person has but rather on the effect of that impairment on the life of the individual. But, if mitigating measures were unimportant, as suggested by the EEOC, why would you look at the effect of the impairment in everyday life? That didn't make sense. Then, in yet another passage, the EEOC also seemed to suggest that controlled blood pressure might not constitute an actual disability. What? The EEOC seemed to be all over the place on this issue of mitigating measures. Ultimately, the Tenth Circuit felt that the EEOC was talking out of both sides of its mouth and had not adequately interpreted the statute. It stated, quote, In making disability determinations, we are concerned with whether the impairment affects the individual in fact, not whether it would hypothetically affect the individual without the use of corrective measures. While plaintiffs' uncorrected vision would undoubtedly substantially limit their major life activity of seeing, this is a hypothetical situation, unquote. Here, as the plaintiffs had admitted that they could don their eyeglasses or contact lenses and go about all their normal daily activities, they were not disabled. The district court was affirmed. This second loss really hurt. The case appeared to have lost cabin pressure and run out of fuel. But the Sutton sisters wanted to press ahead to the U.S. Supreme Court if they could. They did not feel like they were vanquished yet. However, by now, because Sean Mitchell had left his firm and opened his own practice, he felt he could no longer handle an appeal to the Supreme Court. So he called up one of his old friends and associates at his old firm, Aaron Hughes, to see if he wanted to review the file. Aaron Hughes received his law degree at Berkeley only seven years before, and he saw a golden opportunity to obtain review before the Supreme Court. After negotiating with members of his firm, he managed to secure a commitment from them to let him argue the case if, indeed, it was taken up. It seemed like a long shot, but as we've seen throughout history, fate favors the bold. The U.S. Supreme Court had the ADA on its mind at this time. As described in the Washington Post, the Supreme Court decided to review a record five disputes within two months to clarify the law and provide more legal certainty regarding numerous issues. The Sutton sisters won the legal lottery and had their case picked up and brought back to life. Mitigating measures was going to be considered at the highest court in the land, and the decision would impact the rights of the disabled for years to come. When the Supreme Court granted review, United decided that they needed to add more counsel. By all accounts, Lisa Hogan's strategy had paid serious dividends throughout the case. But she had never handled a Supreme Court case before. So United brought in Roy Anglert from Mayor, Brown, and Platt, a large law firm with old roots into the 19th century. He had extensive experience with the Supreme Court, and it was hoped he would provide assistance to Hogan and seal the previous victories. In interviews with Professor Beffert, the various parties noted that Karen Sutton and Kimberly Hinton faced an uphill battle. Many disability advocates thought a lawsuit involving corrective lenses was a bad test case to take before the Supreme Court to resolve the mitigating measures issue. Glasses just work too well. They are a really good example of an invention which can functionally eliminate an impairment. Most corrective measures like medications and prosthetic limbs don't work nearly as well, yet. And a very large portion of Americans use glasses, It was difficult to say that Congress intended all of them to be covered by the ADA. Aaron Hughes explained that the deck seemed to be stacked against his clients. Due to the nature of his client's disability, he was required to take the relatively extreme position that mitigating measures must be disregarded in every case. However, he felt more hopeful about the regarded as disabled argument, which was compelling from the facts of the case. United's vision standards were very strict, and seemed to be untethered from the needs for flying a plane safely. It looked like United was operating with stereotypes toward people with uncorrected vision impairments. Englert would later claim he was also apprehensive about the regarded-as argument, but he and Lisa Hogan hoped to triple down on her textualist strategy for the case, which they hoped would carry the day. A number of judges on the court, particularly Justice Antonin Scalia and Clarence Thomas, seemed willing to rely on the literal meaning of the text without desiring to peel back the curtain too much to look at the legislative history. To make their argument, Lisa Hogan and Roy Anglert wanted to press two lines of attack. First, they pointed to the findings of the ADA. The preamble of the ADA suggested that 43 million Americans were disabled. If what the Congress had written was correct, how could 100 million people with need of corrective lenses like glasses and contacts, have been covered by the act. Second, they returned the element for disability under the statute, which had carried the day before. You needed an impairment, and the impairment had to substantially limit a major life activity. The inclusion of the phrase substantially limit meant that the limitation's present state of correction should be considered, not a hypothetical uncorrected state. Because the text was clear on its face, The court should just apply it and ignore all that business with the legislative history and administrative guidance. The party submitted their briefing and proceeded to oral arguments in April 1999. Although it was to be the last argument of the term, and you would expect the judges to be tired by now, they were quite animated, particularly Justice Scalia, who appeared to be inspecting his own glasses on a number of occasions. The justices came with many questions and like Justice Scalia, they peppered the occasion with jokes about their own poor vision and corrective lenses. There was quite a bit of gallows humor there about an issue which could impact millions of people. But anyway, before Aaron Hughes could make any headway in his argument, Justice Scalia cut to the chase and asked, quote, if correctable myopia is included within the definition of disability, how do you account for the fact that the act itself estimates there are some 43 million disabled people in America. Unquote. Hughes answered that it had never been the Sutton sisters' position that the mere fact of wearing glasses was itself a disability. Rather, you needed to go case by case, and Congress had not made any bright lines. The implication was that the 43 million number contained in the findings was unhelpful to determining who was actually disabled. Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who would end up writing the opinion in the case, then turned the argument to the regarded-as definition of disability. She asked whether United regarded the twins as limited in their ability to perform a single job, a pilot for United. Hughes explained he believed United had regarded them as disabled from performing a broad class of jobs, requiring the same skills, training, and ability of a pilot. Given Angler's previous worries about the regarded-as-disabled argument, Justice O'Connor's focus on this issue was concerning. When it was his turn to speak, she also asked him the first question, whether the court should show deference to the EEOC's interpretation of the act. Angler tried to explain that the EEOC had only issued interpretive guidance, not a formal regulation. Later on, Justice O'Connor pressed him further whether the plaintiffs had properly alleged that United had regarded them as disabled by relying on stereotypes, about their impairment with no data to establish plaintiffs for safety risks. Anglert was required to once again clarify that being regarded as not suitable for employment as a pilot with United was quite different from being regarded as disabled from a range of jobs. Justice Breyer then told Anglert he was concerned about people who might have a prosthetic limb or enormous amounts of medicine. Anglert attempted to distinguish the Sutton Sisters case from those examples and replied that it was inconceivable to him that those people would not have a substantial limitation on a major life activity. Overall, by the end of the hearing, Anglert felt that the justices had been tough on him, and he worried he had lost O'Connor as the potential swing vote. Justice Sandra Day O'Connor was the political and social center of the court, frequently hosting parties, forcing the justices to eat lunch together, and trying to find a woman for Justice David Souter to marry. She had lived a remarkable life and broken many barriers. Raised on a ranch in El Paso, Texas, where she learned to shoot coyotes with a 22 caliber rifle, her home lacked running water until she was 7 years old. She attended private school in El Paso and then attended Stanford for her undergraduate and legal education, finishing in the top 10% of her class. Coincidentally, while attending school, she had briefly started dating soon to be Chief Justice William Rehnquist who would become her colleague later in her life. Justice Rehnquist even proposed marriage to her at one point, but she had rejected him and decided to marry John J. O'Connor instead. After graduating from law school, Sandra Day O'Connor began to encounter discriminatory headwinds, and no one would hire her because she was a woman, so she took a job as a deputy county attorney in California and then served as a civilian attorney in Germany when her husband was drafted. Finally settling in Maricopa County, Arizona to raise her family, Justice O'Connor became more involved in local Republican politics, assisting Barry Goldwater's presidential campaign in 1964 and being appointed by the governor of Arizona to fill a vacancy in the Arizona Senate. President Reagan ultimately nominated her to the Supreme Court in 1981 as the first female justice to serve on the court. At her confirmation hearing, Justice O'Connor noted that she believed the court should not function as a policy-making body, but should interpret and apply the law as written. In her opinion, the court should decide cases on narrow grounds if possible and be heavily reliant on the text of the statute. Although she advocated deciding legal issues on narrow grounds if possible, this was not going to be one of those cases. The Supreme Court ruled against the Sutton twins on June the 22, 1999. It was another big loss, 7 to 2. Although Justice O'Connor never used the word in her decision, her reasoning took a hard, textualist line. Like any good textualist, she began with the text of the statute. The ADA defined a disability in a very specific way, as a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities. In a callback to grammar class, she explained, quote, Because the phrase substantially limits appears in the act in the present indicative form, we think the language is properly read as requiring that a person be presently, not potentially or hypothetically, substantially limited in order to demonstrate a disability. A disability exists only where an impairment substantially limits a major life activity, not where it might, could, or would be substantially limiting if mitigating measures were not taken," unquote. That was a mouthful, but because the text was clear The agency guidelines issued by the EEOC that people should be judged in their uncorrected or unmitigated state was directly counter to the individualized inquiry required by the ADA. The agency's interpretations would force courts to speculate about a person's condition and would, in many cases, force them to make a disability determination based on general information about an uncorrected hypothetical condition. For example, all diabetics Would be found to be disabled because, without medicine, they would certainly be limited in major life activities. Finally, the findings issued by Congress that only some 43 million people had a disability was directly contrary to the position advocated by the Sutton sisters. If they were right and eye impairments were disabilities, you would have findings stating that over 100 million people or more were disabled. But that wasn't what happened or what the statute addressed. Turning to the regarded as argument, which Aaron Hughes had hoped to carry the day, Justice O'Connor said there were only two ways to make such a claim. One could show that a covered entity mistakenly believed that a person had a physical impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities, or that they believed an actual non limiting impairment substantially limited one or more major life activities. In either case, though, these claims could only arise when an employer mistakenly believed that an individual has a substantially limiting impairment. This was not the case here. The Sutton twins had attempted to argue that United had an impermissible vision requirement based on myth and stereotype, and that United mistakenly believed they were unable to work as global airline pilots, and were substantially limited in the major life activity of working. The court found that creating a physical criteria for a job like a vision requirement did not violate the ADA without more the ADA allowed employers to prefer some physical attributes over others, as long as those attributes did not rise to the level of substantially limiting impairments. Furthermore, assuming work was a major life activity, the position of a global airline pilot was a single, discrete job. The petitioners had not shown that they were regarded as disabled from a broad range of jobs. Ultimately, only two justices dissented from the decision, Justice John Paul Stevens and Stephen Breyer. The Sutton sisters had even lost Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Both Justice Stevens and Justice Breyer thought the majority were ignoring basic tools of statutory construction. If you just peeled back the text and looked at the legislative history, both the Senate and House reports on the bill clearly instructed that a person's disability should not be assessed with regard to mitigating measures. This case should have been easy based on that, the court was hung up on the 43 million number in the findings, but that could have just been legislative myopia. Who knows what they were talking about, or if they really intended to limit the ADA to such a small group of individuals. Indeed, as one of the framers of the bill, High Feldblum would later comment, quote, I can attest that the decision to reference 43 million Americans with disabilities in the findings of the ADA was made by one staff person and endorsed by three disability rights advocates that the decision took about 10 minutes to make and that its implications for the definition of disability were never considered by these individuals unquote that really doesn't sound like a finding you want to hang your hat on does it but the court spent enormous time in the opinion looking at just what that finding meant and coming to broad conclusions about it justice stevens was also concerned about the broad scope of the court's decision Based on their reasoning, a person who lost a limb but used a prosthetic limb to retain relative functionality would be considered non disabled. That didn't make a lot of sense to him. Congress had passed the ADA to protect employees like this from discrimination on the job. It was counterintuitive that statutory safeguards would vanish for persons with these kinds of impairments if they were able to overcome their physical limitations with corrective measures. Both Justice Stevens and Breyer also felt that the agency guidance regarding mitigating measures should have been given more weight by the court. But with all that said, the court had ruled the way it had ruled, and the motion to dismiss was affirmed. The Supreme Court also issued two other cases at the same time to make their point very clear, just for the people in the back who hadn't heard it the first time. Mitigating measures were here to stay. In one of those cases, the court found that a mechanic with hypertension was not disabled because his medication properly alleviated his condition. In the next case, the court advised that mitigating measures should also be taken into account for monocular vision. Once these other cases and the Sutton opinion was announced, plaintiffs' ADA claims across the country started falling from the sky as appeals courts began reversing claims which had been won at the district court level and affirming losses when the issue involved the employee's disabled status. This included cases where an employee's hearing loss was alleviated by the use of a hearing aid, a person's diabetes and depression was controlled with medication, and where cancer was mitigated by chemotherapy. EEOC charge filing statistics also showed claims dropping at an alarming rate over the next four years by over 10%. The sudden case had left many open questions. What was the correct deference to provide administrative guidance from the EEOC? The court had sidestepped this issue and left it to further litigation. The court had also drawn a firm line in the sand. It would not accept the idea of per se disabilities. There needed to be an individualized inquiry about whether a person's impairment substantially limited them in major life activities, even when using medications or other corrective measures. This led to uncertainty of outcome as persons with the same disability might not be considered disabled under the act. The regarded-as definition was also messy, as it seemed to rely on the subjective intent of the employer. If an airline like United failed to hire Sutton because it believed her vision disability prevented her from working in a discreet role, like a global airline pilot, she would not be protected under the act. However, if it refused to hire her sister because it believed she could not perform a broad category of roles, including a global airline pilot, she could be covered. The legal analysis just seemed unnecessarily complex and confusing, and it led to odd results. Legal scholarship on the Sutton case often proved heated. Disability rights activists felt that the ADA's purposes had been betrayed, and that the law was becoming a trap of unfair technicalities. There was also frustration over the Supreme Court simply ignoring the legislative record, which, as I've explained throughout this podcast, was pretty extensive. Some legal scholars, such as Wendy Parmit at Northeastern University School of Law, viewed the opinion as reflecting the increasing preference among federal judges for textualism as a method of statutory interpretation, in contrast to theories of interpretation which provide non-textual tools like legislative history, And administrative guidance. This was problematic in the Sutton case not only because the text was silent as to mitigating measures, thus textualism was less helpful, but also because the drafters of the law had tried to redefine disability away from its plain meaning, which carried with it pre existing images of disability. Other scholars also brought up the fact that the opinion was unnecessarily overbroad. The Sutton sisters had argued that all disabilities needed to be treated similarly with respect to mitigating measures under the ADA. They lost on that issue, but perhaps the court could have used a scalpel rather than a sledgehammer to knock away their claims. As I've said earlier, glasses are just different. Ask a regular person on the street whether disability protection should be afforded to someone with glasses and contacts, and they will probably tell you no. Ask them about someone with controlled diabetes Medicated depression or prosthetic limbs, and you will probably get a radically different answer. The reason is simple one is relatively easy to control, and the others are not. The court could have made a small carve out for glasses and waited for a better case to address how broadly to treat this topic, but they didn't do that. Regardless of the legal debate surrounding their case, I'm sure the Sutton sisters probably felt completely deflated after losing for a third and final time. They had spent years hoping for some kind of relief, but had lost at every turn. What was the point of it all? They were finally all out of appeals. But were they really? In a democracy, courts don't have the last word. The people do. And the force of their case took on a life of its own after its defeat. The public began to talk. The Sutton decision, as well as several other cases started a new movement to go back to the drawing board on disability law. In 2002, Representative Steny H. Hoyer threw down the gauntlet in an article to the Washington Post titled, Not Exactly What We Intended. He expressed his belief that the ADA had been misconstrued by the Supreme Court and Congress would have the last word. Disability rights groups and political leaders began to confer regarding ways to repair the act, and by 2006, bipartisan legislation was being drafted to plug the holes. It appeared as if the ADA itself was striking back. After additional debate between the business community, disability rights advocates, and political leaders, Congress enacted the ADA Amendments Act, or the ADAAA, in September 2008. It felt like deja vu, with President George W. Bush, the son of the last president to endorse the ADA, signing an amendment bill 18 years after his father. The findings of the ADAAA went out of their way to expressly reject the reasoning in Sutton, noting that while Congress expected that the definition of disability under the ADA would be interpreted consistently, that expectation has not been fulfilled. Congress had overruled the Supreme Court. From now on, the determination Of whether an impairment substantially limits a major life activity should be made without regard to the ameliorative effects of mitigating measures. This was a dramatic, almost revolutionary shift in the law, which extremely lightened the burden to establish disability under the ADA. However, Congress did make one small exception for ordinary eyeglasses or contact lenses, suggesting that the Supreme Court was not completely off the mark with respect to the Sutton Twins specific issue but the opinion had been trimmed back to almost nothing. Although the case was ultimately refuted by Congress, the efforts of the Sutton sisters and United to litigate their claims in the case was far from being a waste of time and energy. The ADAAA, in its current form, could never have been passed without both sides staking out a position and litigating it. Although the rule announced in Sutton was ultimately overturned by Congress, it provided a stepping stone, along the way to a better understanding of what we want our disability laws to achieve. The case acted as a lens which framed and continues to frame the way we debate disability law. The case also created unpredictable consequences and refocused disability rights in the workplace. Whereas before the definition of disability was unclear, after Sutton, employers in the courts refocused on other areas such as the reasonable accommodation component of the statute. These efforts led to widespread reasonable accommodation policies, which transformed the workplace, largely outside of litigation. These efforts have been likened to a silent revolution in employee-employer relations and have been carried over into the ADAAA, as the main inquiry today is less about whether a person meets the standard for disability and more about whether the company provided assistance to the individual to perform his work. In the end, Sutton versus United Airlines, Inc. moved the entire nation in unexpected ways, transformed the ADA into the statute it is today, and reshaped our understanding of the nature of disability forever. It is hard to find a more legendary case which has made more of an impact on the country. And you don't need glasses to see it. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I will see you next time on Employment Law Legends.